edition of With All Due Respect. Strong opinions on politics, life, and entertainment. Welcome to another episode of With All Due Respect, the podcast that just spent the last two weeks in Rio de Janeiro, courtesy of Ted Underhill's American Express card. Greetings, I'm your host, Erwin M. Fletcher. With me, as always, is my main man, my chief collaborator, my fat Sam and gummy, Van Sanders. Mr. Sanders, two weeks off. Your thoughts on that, sir? You know, aside from the podcast, I've still been crazy busy, but... It is super nice to get back into the groove. Excellent. Yes, it is good to be back. As always, we'd like to thank the Anchorage Daily News for hosting this podcast on their website and remind listeners that the very strong opinions you hear on this podcast are mine and mine alone and in no way, shape, or form represent the opinions of the Anchorage Daily News or their employees. Today on With All Due Respect, we touch all the bases. In state politics, Governor Mike Dunleavy's proposed budget is a big, beautiful sandcastle right before high tide. Also, the investigation of Angela Rodell's firing has begun, and the walls have begun closing in. In local politics, the Bronson administration is acting like hormonal teenagers, so we're thinking about taking away their Xboxes. Ugh, I hate you. And surprise, surprise. Jimmy Hoffa digs himself out of the end zone in Giant Stadium and returns to promote his homeless mega-shelter once again. Um, how about no? In federal politics, as Alaska's U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski single-handedly saves Alaska's economy, Alaska's other U.S. Senator, Dan Sullivan, finally emerges like Punxsutawney Phil, just in time to take credit for something he had nothing to do with. In life, naps are your friend. I'm going to tell you about a great way to grab a quick nap in the style of Albert Einstein and Salvador Dali that will boost your creativity. In entertainment, it's Black History Month, and your host has a book for baseball lovers about one of the first players in the Negro Leagues and one of the finest players in Major League history. And finally, in closing comments, both U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski and Governor Mike Dunleavy are up for re-election this year. One has built Alaska's economy, the other has torn it down. One has been a hero for Alaska, the other has been a zero for Alaska. I'll name names in closing comments. All right, all right. Let's talk some politics. Politics. And now, for some politics. In state politics, as the Alaska State Legislature convenes in Juneau for this year's sine-die grandstanding election year, they have begun to consider the budget of Governor Mike Dunleavy for fiscal year 2023. This year, Governor Dunleavy is touting Alaska has a balanced budget. However, he's not telling you that the budget is only balanced thanks to the man he loves to hate, President Joe Biden. Nearly half of Governor Dunleavy's budget increase is paid for by $375 million in one-time federal money, which will eventually cause deficits in the hundreds of millions beginning next year. I mean, of course it will. You're taking one-time money and creating an ongoing obligation. 
Governor Dunleavy's budget is like, well, it's like getting a birthday check from your Nana and saying, cool, I'm going to buy the car I always wanted because now I have the first month's payment. That means after Governor Dunleavy's travels the state, doing his Eva Peron turn, promising the creation of these new programs on the campaign trail, in two years when the money runs out, he'll have to propose either cuts or new taxes to pay for these programs. Ladies and gentlemen, this is classic election year politics. It's three-card mining using federal money. Think about it. The guy had three years to propose the same much-needed programs, but waits until an election year and when the federal government is picking up the tab. However, aside from the $375 million hole, Governor Dunleavy's programs will drive costs beyond that. For instance, his safety initiatives call for adopting longer sentences, more prosecutors, more police, and more prisons. Look, if you want to be tough on crime, that's cool. But just recognize it ain't free. Being tough on crime costs money. After all, soaring costs in corrections and public safety was the well-intentioned reasoning behind SB 91 a few years back, which was an attempt to lower prison population, reduce recidivism, because annual correction costs were growing unsustainable. So after Governor Dunleavy invests one-time money in all of these new programs, creates all of the organizational and human infrastructure along with public expectations, what happens when next year those funds aren't there? Even his own Office of Budget and Management has said the governor's proposal would create a budget hole in future years. So, what's the opinion of Senator Burt Stedman, Republican from Sitka and co-chair of the Senate Finance Committee? Well, Senator Stedman leaned back and took a sip from his pina colada and painted the governor's proposal in a more tropical light. Quote, it appears to me that they've spent all of the funds they can get their hands on like a bunch of drunken monkeys putting together a budget in euphoria. Drunken monkeys. <laughs> damn. I mean, damn. I guess that's what happens when you get stuffed in the Burt Locker. Side note, the podcast is a huge Sitka fan, so it makes sense that the podcast is a huge Senator Stedman fan. And, full disclosure, the podcast has spent a few nights in fine Sitka establishments like the Sitka Moose Club as a drunken monkey, but never, ever putting together a budget. Unfortunately, not all of our leaders can come from Sitka. Representative Delana Johnson, Republican of Palmer and a member of the House Finance Committee, had a whole different vibe about the governor's budget. Johnson's initial impression of the budget is, hey, it is all good in the neighborhood. Quote, looks like a realistic, straightforward, and honest budget, I thought. Ladies and gentlemen, Governor Dunleavy's budget is built on $375 million worth of sand that will disappear next year. But according to one of Governor Dunleavy's allies, it's a realistic, straightforward, honest financial proposal. Is there any wonder why Alaska has failed to address these challenges for so damn long? And the budget problem is complicated because Governor Dunleavy has no economic plan for the future. Alaska's economy is one of the very few in the country that hasn't reached pre-pandemic economic levels. Governor Dunleavy hasn't succeeded on one major economic initiative in the last three years, but he certainly promised them. In fact, his economic achievements over the last three years are so non-existent that the first Dunleavy commissioner to bail out this year was his Commissioner of Commerce and Economic Development. I guess there's not a lot cooking in the kitchen. 
Last year, you'll remember the governor saying that his economic development team was going to focus on attracting the pharmaceutical industry to Alaska. A year later, listening to those same people, their big thing now is commercializing kelp. Kelp. Alaska's oil industry jobs are down 30% over 2019 levels, and seaweed is apparently the economic answer. Speaking of looking for answers, the LBNA committee, looking for answers regarding the suspicious firing of Angela Rodell, have retained legal counsel to investigate the matter. The committee has instructed their legal team to interview all appropriate witnesses, and if they need subpoenas to compel testimony, they will be provided. As with similar investigations, the committee will have no knowledge of updates during the investigation and will only receive the final report. What this does is eliminate any potential political grandstanding, and we get a truly independent report without being tainted by politics. Now, in recent weeks, more discoveries have been made about the events leading up to Rodell's firing. First, let's all remember Governor Mike Dunleavy has made three very clear public statements about what he knew and when he knew it. One, he had nothing to do with the firing of Rodell. Two, he can't recall ever having any conversations about the firing of Angela Rodell. And three, he knew nothing about the decision to fire Rodell until it became public. However, according to public records obtained by the Alaska Landmine, shows a flurry of meetings that raises significant questions about what Governor Dunleavy knew and when he knew it. According to public records, between November 2nd and November 23rd, there were seven different meetings that included four of the five trustees that voted to fire Rodell, including five meetings that included Governor Mike Dunleavy. Now, meetings happened, this was budget time, so this doesn't prove there is a fire. But man, you cannot deny there is a hell of a lot of smoke. I mean, that's seven meetings in three weeks between permanent fund board trustees in the month leading up to Angela Rodell's surprise firing. And yet nobody said anything? And yet nobody knew anything? And that's not it, my friends. On December 9th, the day Angela Rodell was fired, Commissioner Corey Feige was forced to call into the meeting to fire Rodell because, wait for it, she was at that very moment in Reno, Nevada with Governor Dunleavy at a mining conference. But yet, according to Governor Dunleavy, he only found out when the public found out. The cover-up is always worse than the crime. And it's clear there's an obvious cover-up going on here. So let's hope this independent investigation gets to the bottom of the firing of Angela Rodell. Let's determine if this was political and let's give policymakers a roadmap to ensure this does not happen again. In local politics, the conflicts between the Anchorage Assembly and City Hall continue. As we've said for the last months on this podcast, this is all about the Bronson administration trying to set the table and create the narrative before the April elections that all of the problems Anchorage faces are because of a recalcitrant and do-nothing assembly. I love that, do-nothing. Hey, man, you do nothing. Yo, man, I'm government. I'm supposed to do nothing. (laughs) Moving on. The Bronson administration has been no-shows at meetings, they've failed to respond to questions, and when they do respond to questions, it sounds as if City Hall is being run by hormonal teenagers. Why do you ruin my life so much? The assembly's like, Dear City Hall, what's happening with the shelter contract? Whatever. All right. How about the status of COVID testing? It's fine. Leave me alone. Okay, how about just answering questions about the police department? Ugh, I hate you. 
Then, just like a hormonal teenager, they'll show up every Tuesday night and demand to know, What's for dinner? Meanwhile, in a terse response, Anchorage City Manager Amy Dabosky accused the Anchorage Assembly members of being combative while bringing up the old dispute over who controls the Assembly Chambers. Look, 15 seconds on this, please. It's called the Assembly Chambers because it's the Assembly Chambers. It's the seat of local government. It is the seat of the Anchorage Assembly. Of course, the Assembly Chair controls the Chamber, just like the Speaker of the House controls the House floor or the Senate President controls the Senate floor. So why the fight? So why in the history of the Anchorage Assembly is suddenly there any question about who controls the Chambers when the Assembly's in session? Because, ladies and gentlemen, you're dealing with hormonal teenagers that should not be at the controls of city government. Speaking of the biggest hormonal teenager, last week, Mayor Dave Bronson, after drafting Anchorage's project wish list in private, demanded the Anchorage Assembly request $15 million from the state of Alaska to fund his long-sought-after mega-shelter for the homeless. But when the assembly balked because, let's face it, the mega shelter plan is poorly thought out, it's way too expensive for taxpayers, and there are still so many unanswered questions, Mayor Bronson then threatened to cut off all further conversations between City Hall and the assembly regarding solving the homeless issue in Anchorage. Then, if that wasn't enough, Mayor Bronson said to Assemblymember Chris Constant for all to hear... Quote, I have the money and I don't need you to do it. I could do this project on my own. First, no, he doesn't have the money. And second, no, he can't do the project on his own. But that never stopped a hormonal teenager from threatening now, did it? Then, after getting rebuffed by the assembly, the mayor got a boost from his former homeless director, John Morris. You'll remember John Morris, Mayor Bronson's former homeless director, who, like Bronson, is married to the mega shelter concept. The same John Morris who pulled a Jimmy Hoffa at a meeting he scheduled while disappearing without so much as saying goodbye? Well, he resurfaced this past week and penned an op-ed in the Anchorage Daily News demanding the Assembly build the mega shelter. Now, I'm not going to go into why a guy who walked away without a word suddenly has words, but his op-ed was basically, why hasn't the damn Assembly built the mega shelter yet? Now, for months on this podcast, we raised questions about John Morris and the company who was positioned to build the mega shelter. Something just wasn't right. First, the cost of the mega shelter had gone from $7 million to $14 million to $21 million and was still growing. Second, here we had John Morris actually paying for the design of the mega shelter before Mayor Bronson was even sworn into office. So, of course, this raised questions about Morris's involvement with the company he was shepherding into building the mega shelter. On October 27th of last year, the Alaska Landmine filed a public request with City Hall for emails about John Morris and his relationship with Sprung, the Utah-based company Morris was promoting. So far, City Hall has refused to provide those emails after three months. So, this podcast has two suggestions. Before taxpayers ever listen to John Morris or Mayor Dave Bronson on their mega shelter idea, taxpayers need to understand the cozy relationship between the administration and the mega shelter builder. And if Anchorage City Manager Amy Domboski would spend less time commuting to her home in Wasilla, she'd have more time to provide the public with those emails that were requested three months ago. In federal politics, if not for U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski, then for whom? 
Last year, when Alaska's tourism looked like it was going to suffer a second straight cruise shipless summer, U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski went to the White House and said, my state needs help, and she got it. With one phone call, Lisa Murkowski single-handedly collaborated with the White House to save the summer tourist season. Then, with Alaska's economy struggling and a state government that has stopped investing in infrastructure for decades, Lisa Murkowski negotiated across party lines the largest infrastructure funding in Alaska's history that will have the effect of literally saving Alaska's economy. Lisa Murkowski began last year on this track. She started negotiations with eight fellow senators, four Republicans and four Democrats. They created a process. They grinded out negotiations. From a political standpoint, what Murkowski was able to accomplish was nothing less than historic. So what about Alaska's other U.S. senator, Dan Sullivan? Where was he? How helpful was he? Well, not only did Sullivan originally oppose the legislation, but he actually mocked the group attempting to negotiate the deal, including Murkowski. This past summer, at the same time Murkowski was working across party lines, Sullivan was on CNBC at the same time mocking their negotiations, claiming it was a waste of time. Now, seven months later, old Danny boy wants to claim credit that ain't due. This past week, Senator Sullivan joined Senator Murkowski and Representative Don Young to discuss with state lawmakers the unprecedented benefits this federal legislation would bring to Alaska. So, here was Dan Sullivan, who did nothing to help, in fact, initially opposed the bill and mocked the collaborators, now proceeding to take credit for military spending, broadband, critical permitting reform, a historical list of funding, as he called it. So this is how it works, I guess. Lisa does all the hard work, then Dan sidles up to steal credit. Think about that. Lisa Murkowski spent months suffering the slings and arrows from her own party for collaborating across party lines and working with the White House. And then, after she achieves historic success for Alaska, Dan Sullivan suddenly appears with a wide smile ready to take the victory lap. Dan Sullivan is nothing more than an empty suit. He reminds me of that Seinfeld character, Lou, the Seidler guy. Seinfeld fans might remember Lou, Elaine's co-worker, who moves so quietly she couldn't hear him. And he'd use his ability to sidle up beside her whenever she presented her work so he could steal half the credit for her accomplishments. That's our U.S. Senator Dan Sullivan. Like in that Seinfeld episode, maybe Senator Murkowski needs to get Senator Sullivan a box of Tic Tacs to carry around. That way, when he comes sidling up to her next time she accomplishes something historic, hell, she'll at least hear him coming. And now, let's talk about life. In life, let's face it, napping is awesome. Personally, I'm not sure why it took me so long to appreciate the value and the beauty of naps. Now, according to a new study, a unique napping habit practiced by Thomas Edison and Salvador Dali might be one way to unlock your creativity when you're high-centered. Participants of the study were instructed to allow themselves to fall asleep and reach the N1 stage of sleep. In N1, people can perceive shapes, colors, and dream a bit, but aren't yet in a deeper stage. The trick is to stay in N1 only fleetingly. So, in order to accomplish that, Edison and Dolly would nap while holding an object like a spoon in their hands. When they began to doze, their muscles would relax and the object would fall to the floor, waking them up. Then, they began to go back to work, believing that the brief rest had improved their creativity. 
In the recent study, the subjects were given a cup to hold, and when the cup hit the floor, they woke up. Participants were tested afterwards, and the results showed that those that reached the N1 stage were better at solving tasks that had previously been stymied. I will personally vouch for this technique. However, I'll be real honest with you. It works much better if you hold nothing and sleep until you wake up naturally, or at least until you hear the music. And now, entertainment. In entertainment, February is Black History Month, and as a diehard baseball fan, nothing has intrigued me more than the professional Negro baseball leagues. So I picked up a book about one of the earliest stars in the Negro Leagues who went on to be voted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. The book is called The Bonafide Legend of Cool Papa Bell, Speed Grace in the Negro Leagues. James Bell was born in 1903. He'd become one of the first players in the Negro Leagues in 1920 and one of the finest players in history. During that time, James Bell made a name for himself in the league as a smart player with blazing speed, the ability to hit the ball anywhere. For 50 years, Major League Baseball was completely segregated, so the National Negro League was created in 1920. However, during the off-seasons, Major League stars like Ted Williams, Roger Hornsby, Walt Feller would come to play winter baseball in places like California and Mexico, and they'd end up playing in tournaments against Bell and his fellow Negro League All-Stars. More times than not, Bell and his team got the better of their Major League counterparts in spectacular fashion. In fact, it got so bad that the commissioner of baseball threatened to cancel the games. Soon, Players like Ted Williams and Roger Hornsby and others began to speak out saying, hey, these guys are really good, if not better than we are. Why aren't we playing together? Finally, in 1947, Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in heralding the end of segregation in the major leagues. Ladies and gentlemen, the 1950s was the first decade of integrated major league baseball. During that first decade, 80% of the National League MVPs were players from the Negro Leagues. Some say James Bell was born 20 years too early, but his story shows an amazing man who dedicated his life playing a game he loved during a time of blatant discrimination amongst a constant threat of violence. This is a book of optimism, the story of one man, James Cool Papa Bell, his style, his integrity, and his love of baseball. The book again is called The Bonafide Legend of Cool Papa Bell, Speed Grace in the Negro Leagues. It's written by Lonnie Wheeler. It checks in at 302 pages, and it's available in paperback. I highly recommend this book. Politics, life, entertainment. In closing comments, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski, with her ability to work across party lines in Washington, D.C., has saved Alaska's economy. Her ability to say, Hell with politics. I'm going to do what's right for Alaska will result in billions in much-needed investments while providing thousands of jobs for Alaskans. Now, you'd think Governor Mike Dunleavy, a Republican governor who has led this state to one of the worst economic performances of any governor in the United States over the last three years, would be eternally grateful for Murkowski's hard work. Lisa Murkowski delivered historic infrastructure investments in less than one year working across party lines. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, this has got to be the first time in history where a United States senator's call just before the stroke of midnight pardons the governor and his state's failing economy. 
Lisa Murkowski delivered for Governor Dunleavy an 11th hour reprieve, but he won't endorse Lisa Murkowski because instead of doing what's right for Alaska, he feels it's better continuing bowing to former President Donald Trump instead of standing tall for Alaska. He's just like our U.S. Senator Dan Sullivan, where it's better for Sullivan to continue bowing to the Trump supporters who stormed the Capitol causing death and chaos than it is for him to have the courage to defend democracy. What is it with politicians like Dunleavy and Sullivan? They portray themselves as these stand tall, defend your country, when in fact they're both so pathetically weak with Twizzlers for backbones. Alaska's U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski is the hero Alaskans need to celebrate this election year. Alaska's Governor Mike Dunleavy is the zero Alaskans need to defeat this election year. And there is the music, ladies and gentlemen. You know what that means. Our time is up. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. Van, how about throwing us your website details? Yeah, if you visit abodabobrand.com, you can read a little bit more about me and what I do and reach out with the contact form at the bottom. That's A-B-O-D-A-B-O-B-R-A-N-D.com. That is our time, ladies and gentlemen, and we thank you for yours.